Y'all are in for a treat this morning. I am excited and pleased to welcome Dr. Ken Wilgus to the pulpit this morning. Uh, Ken is a clinical Christian psychologist practicing in the DFW area. He and his wife Sally and their family have been coming to Christ Church for some time. Many of you will know Ken from our Partnering with Parents seminars, and you can learn more about those in this card here. Let's uh, give Ken a warm welcome. Okay, you can, you can have a seat. I've been going here uh, over 10 years. For the first two years, I was known almost exclusively as Sally Wilgus's husband. Now you know why. By the way, I've learned two things already this morning. Number one, this is hard. I've already done this two hours ago, so I'm standing here going, where were you people when I already did this? The other thing is that if you stand here, you can do kind of a Marilyn Monroe thing with your, I just, okay. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. I know what you're thinking. Many of you are thinking, who is that guy and what is he doing up there? And I don't blame you for that. I kind of feel that way myself. But I was also raised in church, so I happen to know that there are more than a few of you that are actually thinking, I wish someone would have told me that Father Paul's not preaching. We could be halfway to brunch by now. And, and to you, I have two words for you. One is uh, that's what you get for not reading the call. You should get the church newsletter. You would have known. And secondly, I have looked around the room, and I know that there are at least two or more of us here today gathered in Jesus' name, which means that by his own promise, the Spirit of Christ is here with us this morning. Amen. So if you will join me in prayer, we will seek his help. The Lord be with you. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. Lord, we ask this morning that you would uh, quicken our hearts, that the words from my mouth and the ears to hear, that between them we would see you more clearly. We praise you, Father God, in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I was thinking about us this morning and praying, and, and I was thinking about that um, as a Christian psychologist, it's a little bit like being a shade tree mechanic. If Christ Church is uh, an authorized dealer of the gospel, then I'm kind of that guy that gets under the hood uh, of Christians and looks at their thoughts and their feelings. So I'm kind of here to tell you some things that might be uh, causing your engine to have trouble. And sort of like that guy that tells you to always check your oil and water, I have to start by being honest. Um, I am concerned, increasingly concerned, about Christians' fading awareness of important uh, spiritual struggles that are inside your head. We've increased our medical and our psychological knowledge of how we feel and what we think. Patients come to my office with sophisticated questions about their serotonin level. Everybody always knows their love language. But when asked, what do you think the role of the Spirit is in the current crisis in your life? These same people often answer very elementary. Well, maybe God's trying to teach me something. Seriously? You have a rare a disease that your child has been diagnosed with, or your spouse of 20 years you've discovered is unfaithful, and he's teaching you a lesson? See, it didn't always used to be this way. The great Christian writers of history St. Augustine in the fourth century, St. John of the Cross, 16th century. These were writers that explored the deep workings of man's soul. 
Today, their writings are on the bookshelf right next to the 30-day faith detox or the Holy Spirit, your financial advisor. So today, I want to try to expose a common but important spiritual battle that goes on in your head, and I'm calling this shame in the good Christian. So it starts with this. Why are so many Christians unhappy? We Christians believe that Jesus has come, paid for our sins, and opened a clear path to unbroken fellowship with the living God. So why aren't we content? What interferes with our experiencing this unbroken fellowship with a God who loves us and has promised that all things work together for good? I can give you a couple of examples from my office just in the last few weeks. I had a mother of two adult children, one of which has struggled with addiction issues for years. The other just recently announced that they were divorcing. And she is weeping in my office and seeking the answer to the question that she is obsessed with, like a lot of moms, what did I do wrong that caused my children to be so screwed up? Or take this other guy that was in my office with his wife, and he can hardly stay in the room when she even touches on the subject of his marital infidelity. He'll practically yell at her with stuff like, you know, the Bible says to press forward and not look behind. Why can't you do that? And I'll take him aside and I'll say, you know, she really needs to talk about this. And he tells me, I know. I know I'm forgiven. I don't think I can ever forgive myself. In both of these cases, these Christians have examined themselves and found themselves wanting. They know their sins are forgiven, but it doesn't give them any peace in these circumstances. All of you can think of things you have done or characteristics of you that you just don't like about you, and Jesus died for my sins just doesn't really cut it or even seems irrelevant. You're just unhappy about you. Now, the human tendency toward negative self-evaluation is universal, uh, and uh, without knowing you, I know that because you are humans, there are some things that you don't like about you. I can give you some examples. Remember the first time you heard your own recorded voice? Now, an audiologist can explain why it sounds different in your head from outside of your head, but why is it that virtually no one likes the sound of their voice? How come no one goes, hey, that sounds pretty good? <laughs> or what about group photos, <clears throat> group photos that you're in? How come when you look at a photo of a group, why do you secretly sometimes look for yourself first? Don't you know what you look like? Why is it that you hear the, when pictures come up, why do you hear people always going, oh, I look terrible. No, you don't. You look cute. I look like a troll. No, you don't. And back and forth. And what is that? <laughs> all these examples point to an underlying pattern that exists within all of us. But few of us see it or realize the significance of this pattern to spiritual growth in the Christian life. This pattern is clearly seen in the gospel reading from John chapter 13. So if you have that, if you'll look that up, John chapter 13. What I like about this story is that it perfectly illustrates this struggle. It's why you don't like you. I call it the pride and shame swing, and it's not a dance. Notice Peter's first reaction to Jesus' humble action of foot washing. It was pride. Peter says, 
Never shall you wash my feet. You can just hear the emphasis on the word my. Peter's objection seems to suggest that he fancied himself a more humble or devoted servant than the other disciples. Unlike the other disciples, Peter, in his great self-denial, would never allow Jesus to wash his feet. This was hardly the only time that Peter uh, declared his greater devotion or courage from his peers, and Peter was not the only apostle to do this. Remember James and John wanting to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. Peter was just really bad at keeping his mouth shut. Do you remember at the, the, uh, uh, at, he was standing at the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and he's given his little speech about three shelters, and God himself has to in- interrupt going, uh, this is my son, listen to him. Peter's like Donald Trump with a Twitter account. Just, just bleh, you just can't, just stop. <laughs> Jesus' response cuts through Peter's false humility. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, this coincides with his consistent assertion that he has come to call the right, not righteous, but sinners. Peter sees himself as someone who does not need to be served by Jesus, then he's not really a believer. This is, of course, true for us today, so-called Christians who feel they are good and humble people but really don't understand Jesus' message at all. What's interesting here, however, is Peter's sudden response. Instead of accepting this mild rebuke, he turns completely around and announces, Lord, then wash not only my feet but my hands and my head. He's gone from secretly feeling like the best man in the room to a new certainty that he is the worst of all men, needing complete renewal from his wickedness. His pride, having been dashed as misdirected, Peter expresses what may seem like an opposite emotion, shame. I assume you all know who Brene Brown is, right? Darling of TED Talks, researcher on shame. Come on, daring greatly? Okay, whatever. Brene Brown, who has done a lot of research on human shame, said this. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. Do you see that? That's what happens to all of us. We can swing from feeling like secret superheroes to feeling like the lowest human on the planet so very easily. It turns out that pride and shame are two sides of the same coin. The problem is that we can feel the shame part Pride, the constant desire to be more than we are, is so automatic that we don't realize it. In the 15th century German priest, Thomas Akempis, says many are secretly seeking their own ends in what they do, yet know it not. Our own pride often feels like humble devotion to a good cause or purpose. Remember that kid in elementary school that kept bossing you around and kept going, I'm just telling you what the teacher said. Now, this pride and shame swing is not a specifically Christian observation. Great thinkers throughout history have seen this pattern. Take the American philosopher Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) He puts it like this. All men kind of think of themselves like low-level superheroes in their own world. When men are growing up and are reading about Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, these aren't fantasies. These are options. This is the deep inner secret truth of the male mind. The 5th century Chinese philosopher, Lao Tzu, says this, when one sets his heart on being highly esteemed and achieves such rating, then he is automatically involved in losing his status. 
Remember the two patients that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk? Both of them were intensely ashamed of themselves. But is this due to pride? Well, for example, remember the mom that worries that she messed up her kids? To these moms, I always offer this remedy. Don't worry. If it's true that your adult children's bad choices are completely because of their mother, then it only follows that your bad mothering is your mother's fault. That's just math. I mean, come on. Does that ever comfort any mother in my office? No. Why? Well, because, and this woman, by the way, her mother was an alcoholic, really bad upbringing, but while she would assume that her children are because of her, she would never assume that she's because of her mother because she should be better. You see it? Secret superhero mom. It doesn't cause great feelings, it causes pain. What about the guy who doesn't want to hear about his adultery? Interestingly, that guy and his wife were at a church that assigned them to be in a um, mentoring couple to meet with them. And the guy in the mentoring couple, they had gone through the same thing, except the guy, the mentor husband had, had three affairs. And so I asked my patient, I said, man, you must hate that guy. He goes, no, he's a pretty good guy. You see, how can he so easily forgive someone else of something even worse, but not himself? Because that's someone else. I'm me. I should have known better. I should have been better. Do you see what that is? That secret superhero stuff. You know, the Bible's warning that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That may not be some promise that God will zap every proud person so much as a statement of the human condition. Watch a person's life long enough and you will see significant times when they are shaken to the core with uncertainty about whether they're worth anything. Earlier crowing over their skill and success become mocking voices in their own head. So where does the pride and shame swing come from? What's interesting is that I can find no psychological research that even approaches the answer to the question, why is it normal for human creatures to feel ashamed of themselves? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the pride and shame swing started and comes from sin. Do you remember the story, the origin of sin is in Genesis chapter 3. In that story, of course, we find that Satan tempted our great-great-great-great-grandparents with the temptation that when you eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, remember that the temptation to these great-great-grandparents succumbed to was to be like God. This was not a couple of kids who broke God's fruit-eating rules. This was a created being seeking to usurp the role of the creator and make a God of themselves, equal to the true God. And their eyes were opened. That is, there was some awareness that they received and therefore we received that they did not have before. They started thinking like they were a God. Only the true God determines that which is truly good and that which is evil. Thinking like a God means that we decide for ourselves what is good and evil, like God does. Pretty great, huh? No. Turns out we are not gods and we know it. The chasm between our sinful, godlike thinking and the limited, vulnerable creatures that we really are results in the pain of intense shame. Their first experience was they knew they were naked. Now, let's be careful. This has nothing to do with redefining sin as some psychological condition. We're only making the point here that the changed awareness 
that sin brought about has created a painful conflict within us that has plagued mankind throughout history. The man who thinks like he is a god. And what's the first thing they did? They made themselves loincloths. The heart's reflexive response to the shame of nakedness is to cover. The man and woman didn't, see their own, didn't want to see their own vulnerability and didn't want each other to see it. What's interesting is there's no evidence that they disliked the appearance of their spouse. They just started that gaze looking at each other with the, what are you looking at kind of uh, defensiveness. People have a very bad habit of assuming that others are judging them with the same condemning eye that they have turned on themselves. You know, studies show that the appropriate amount of eye contact you can have with a person that you don't know before they get creeped out <clears throat> is 3.3 seconds. <laughs> we wither under the gaze of others because we begin to feel our own self-condemnation coming from their eyes. I have known more than one angry teenage boy that got into a fight with another angry teenage boy that he did not know simply because they had locked angry gazes at each other across the lunchroom. Cain slew Abel because simply looking at him reminded him of his own guilt and shame. Brene Brown also says, when we are feeling shame and fear, blame is never far behind. Sometimes we turn inward and blame ourselves, and other times we strike out and blame others. Human history is replete with the drama of people covering their own shame by lashing out and even killing others who threaten to expose their nakedness. Man's sin permanently changed us, and we are cursed. We are the man who thinks like he is a god and knows that he is not. Listen, the problem is not that you are making wrong judgments about you. The problem is that you were never meant to be judging yourself at all. So what can be done for us? The Bible shows us that there is only one surprising cure for the man who thinks like he is a god. What if God were to think like he is a man? What if God were to become a man, Emmanuel, God with us? But how could the real God who is a man empathize with us? He would have to be born just as we are. He'd have to have endured poverty, torture, rejection by family and friends, false accusation, racial prejudice, and not even be good-looking. Friends, that is Jesus. In her book, Daring Greatly, Brene Brown says, if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame can't survive. The God who became a man would completely expose our true nakedness and just how not God we are, which would be great news to those who are weak and their nakedness is exposed. But what about those of us that are covered with the fig leaf of political power or religious uh, knowledge? They would have to, we would have to eliminate such a man. But what if God raised him from the dead? What if we dealt him our worst and he's still here, totally knows your facade and yet loves you just as you are? It would make a mockery of the whole pride and shame problem. That is the spirit of Christ who is in this room this morning. In the end, it's actually Peter that shows most clearly the change that must take place to overcome our sinful self-voice. In the book of John chapter 21, we read a story of Jesus standing on the shore, calling to some of the disciples who are in a boat fishing and directing them where to cast their nets, resulting in a huge catch. This actually happened twice. 
The first time this happened, Peter responded in shame, directing Jesus to depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But this time, things had changed. Peter had just suffered the greatest failure of his life by abandoning Jesus and several times denying that he even knew him only hours after he had pridefully claimed that he would never leave Jesus' side. You know, it is often our greatest failure, your worst nightmare of shameful failure, that is the path to great spiritual growth. What also had changed is that the man that was calling to them from the shore had endured death on the cross, despising the shame, and had been risen from the dead, transformed. The disciple John recognized Jesus from the boat, and he says, it is the Lord. This time, Peter did not respond with shame. He immediately dives in the water and swims to Jesus. Peter finally learned what we must learn in all things, seek the spirit of Christ and stay near to him. Jesus then asks Peter some questions and reveals the change in Peter. He asks, do you love me more than these? Peter certainly doesn't take the bait and boast of himself above others, but neither does he react in shame at a clear reminder of his previous boasts. He answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter now knows himself only as he is known by Jesus. Jesus then asks two more times, do you love me? Peter is saddened but not shaken by Jesus' probing, finally appealing to his only foundation. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of Christ who is in you is not calling you to work on not being too prideful, nor is he trying to raise your self-esteem. He is in the process of dethroning your godlike self. This is called sanctification. Listen, growth in the Christian life is not self-improvement. It is surrender. 17th century Archbishop Francois Fenelon said, you do not need to be cured. You need to be slain. Quit looking for a remedy and let death come. This is the only way to deal with self. Instead of judging ourselves acceptable or unacceptable, the Christian is learning how to not judge himself or herself at all. Jesus is now our judge. We no longer belong to ourselves. You know, I've often heard many people say, well, you know, the Lord knows that he sometimes has to hit me over the head with a two-by-four to get through to me. My friends, Jesus has never hit anyone over the head with a two-by-four. The Bible says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. When you're standing in front of a mirror, do you really believe that's Jesus' voice in your head saying, girl, you just got to lose weight? Does Jesus think your nose is too big or you're too short? Is Jesus' voice condemning you for not reaching your sales goals this month? Is that Jesus' voice that tells you to stop looking at porn? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's definitely Jesus' voice. <laughs> but what about those thoughts that say, I'm the worst person in the world for even being tempted by this? No, that's you. You're trying not to be a forgiven and loved sinner. You still want to be a good person. So when the topic comes up, you're the one going, porn? What is porn? Come on. This is one of the reasons that we must study the Bible as best we can, can to learn to differentiate Jesus' voice from our own self as God voice. Does Jesus think you should be embarrassed that you haven't upgraded to the latest iPhone? 
Unless you have an iPhone 5, of course. I mean, those are terrible. Jesus knows that. 16, no, of course not. Of course not. And shall I dare say, especially with students in the room, is it the voice of Christ that will accept nothing but A's in school? In the end, Peter laid down himself as judge and knew himself only as he is known by Jesus. Jesus calls all of us to lay down the burden of self as God and find peace in making him our judge. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.